You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Many of us were trained long before MRI scans, PET scans, spec scans, some of us even before CAT scans. What should every practicing physician know about neuroanatomy? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, Director of Foothill Psychiatry and Foothills Foundation in Boise, your host. And with me today is Dr. Stephen Dewey, Senior Scientist at Brookhaven National Laboratory. Dr. Dewey also holds faculty appointments at SUNY Stony Brook, as well as NYU's School of Medicine. He has published extensively on the neurobiology of addiction, as well as other topics. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Dewey. Thank you for having me. You got your doctorate in anatomy from the University of Iowa in the 80s, correct? That's correct. I bet things have changed a bit since then. The anatomy that I learned back in the late 70s and early 80s hasn't changed that much. But the consequences of the anatomy, the physiology, how the systems work, we have just learned so much more than back in the days when I was in medical school. Well, I thought it would be fun and hopefully enlightening for many of us to look both kind of from the higher level up view of the CNS down to the receptor neurotransmitter level. So let's start looking from 30,000 feet just at the, at the brain and the CNS. What's the general organizational scheme we can think of here? The general scheme you can think of is that the brain obviously sits in the head and it communicates to the body through the spinal cord. And that hasn't changed. That hasn't changed in, in eons. We know that most of the higher cognitive function occurs in the cerebral cortex, which is that part of the brain that's on the outside. All those neurons in the cerebral cortex send their information down through the spinal cord, and we go from the spinal cord, which is part of the central nervous system, out to the peripheral nervous system so we can get information out to our muscles and organs. So from a 30,000-foot level, the organization is actually quite elegant. You have the brain in the head talking to the body through the spinal cord in our back, through the peripheral nervous system, which are nerves that go extend throughout our body. That really hasn't changed in the last 25 years. We may have a better understanding of some of the subtle connections that we didn't know back then, but for the most part, it's a very well-organized and very efficient system that is protected, obviously, by considerable amount of bone, the central nervous system that is, and with a lot of systems that are redundant. And that becomes very important when we think about traumatic brain injury or strokes and things of that nature. Sounds like most of us are still okay on that. Now, if, if we go 20,000 foot or a little closer inside, what do we need to know there? As we get a little closer, what we need to know is, in fact, the brain is probably a little more plastic or pliable than certainly than what I was taught back in the late 70s and early 80s. That is, that things aren't as rigid as we think. There used to be Dale's principle where one neuron released one neurotransmitter. That doesn't seem to be the case anymore. There's a lot of very compelling data that different neurons can release different neurotransmitters. In fact, there's some really nice work showing that you can, just based on things like different stimuli, different behaviors, you can get different neurons to release different neurotransmitters. So, I think if we, if we come in a little bit from that 30,000 and go down to the 20,000 or even 10,000, what we can say is that the brain, the, the anatomy is the same, but the physiology or the neurochemistry is really, we've learned a lot more about it. And, and many of the long-held theories that we've had have not held up, that in fact the brain is much more plastic than we thought, that the brain can respond to things 
in a more efficient way than we thought. And one of the reasons is because things are not as rigid in terms of the neurochemistry as I was trained that they were. And this is all, much of this has come out of the new advances in neuroimaging. Now, one of the things certainly I think that most people believe of physicians and lay public is that once you kill a brain cell, it's dead forever. Is that true? Well, in fact, once you kill a brain cell, it is dead forever. That is true. But what isn't true is that there are no longer neurons that can take its place. When I was in medical school many, many years ago, it was long thought that all neurons in the central nervous system were post-mitotic. That meant they, they were no longer dividing and multiplying. Well, we now know that, in fact, that isn't true, that there are now parts of the brain that are still, as adults, producing new neurons. Furthermore, we now know from some very elegant studies that have been monitored with imaging that if a neuron dies or if a series of neurons die, that other neurons can take over its role. In fact, there's been a lot of very elegant work showing that in traumatic brain injury patients or patients who have hemispherectomies or things of that nature, that parts of the brain that at one time performed a certain behavior can now start to perform multiple behaviors. That in fact, again, the brain is much less rigid than certainly I was taught when I was in medical school, that in fact the brain is very plastic. That is, it changes in response to a series of events. Now, we knew that when I was in medical school. We knew that that was the case in younger people. But what we're finding is that, in fact, it also seems to be the case in adults, perhaps less so, but it certainly is the case still in adults. Now, if we zoom in even further and look on a neurotransmitter level, I'm always amazed when I talk to physicians about neurotransmitters, what they think, and what they think is the most common neurotransmitter in the brain. Can you enlighten us on that, please? Sure. The most common neurotransmitter in the brain is GABA. GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. And I think we have to think of this kind of like we think of a computer. A computer when charged with a task, has a go-no-go response. That means it either does something or it doesn't do something. And the brain is kind of the same way, except that these neurotransmitters, dopamine, acetylcholine, glutamate, the norepinephrine, the the noradrenergic neurotransmitters, uh, for the most part are excitatory. That means they want to excite, they want to tell another neuron to fire. And what you have is this GABA system, which is ubiquitous. It's all over the central nervous system telling everything no. So it's really kind of this controlling system that controls all the other neurotransmitters. And what we've found out is that in many disease states, it's actually a disinhibition or it's a loss of GABAergic control that results in these other neurotransmitters releasing their neurotransmitter, which is excitatory. I think that one of the, the classic examples is a disease like schizophrenia, where it's long been thought, the dopamine hypothesis for schizophrenia says that you release brain dopamine and the disease, for whatever reason, produces an increase in dopamine receptors. Well, that's really the opposite of how the system works. The system is very dynamic. That means it monitors the amount of dopamine released and the number of receptors available. And if too much dopamine is released, the system downregulates or reduces the number of dopamine receptors. In a disease like schizophrenia, it increases the number of receptors, so we get a bigger dopamine signal. 
Well, one of the ways to, to manage that is to potentiate or make more effective the GABA system, which inhibits brain dopamine. So if we actually now come in and look at the neurotransmitter level, we have a much better understanding of how neurotransmitters work and a much better understanding of how they are controlled. And I think these are where the advances have occurred because for many, many years, we've always thought that you treat the neurotransmitter thought to be responsible for the disorder. Now what we see is we can start to treat other neurotransmitters that regulate that neurotransmitter. And our treatment approaches are actually improving. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is senior scientist at Brookhaven National Laboratory, Dr. Stephen Dewey. We are discussing some of the fundamentals of neuroanatomy. So GABA is huge. In terms of order of magnitude, what are the other major neurotransmitter players in our brains? I think in terms of order of magnitude, we have the excitatory neurotransmitters. These are glutamate, aspartate. We have the monoaminergic neurotransmitters, norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine. And we have neurotransmitters that have long been thought to play a role in cognition. And these are things like acetylcholine and nicotine. So these are really kind of the fundamental players. They play roles in movement, our ability to move. Parkinson's disease is one characterized by a loss in brain dopamine. Huntington's chorea is a disease caused that's associated, long been associated with a change in brain GABA. Schizophrenia is dopamine. What we've learned is that our thinking that every CNS disease is related to a single neurotransmitter has absolutely been changed. In fact, we have to look at the brain as an alphabet, A talks to B, B to C, C to D, and so on. And to think that one single neurotransmitter produces a disease is now obviously quite naive. In fact, the imaging strategies we use have shown that it's, in fact, quite naive. So it's allowed us to better target pharmacotherapies to different neurotransmitter systems. For example, Years ago, we would never have thought of using a GABA drug to treat schizophrenia, but there's now nice evidence that GABA drugs do work for schizophrenia. For many years, we thought that you need to give drugs that are cholinergic, that bind to acetylcholine receptors for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. Well, now we know that it's not just acetylcholine that's altered, but a whole host of other drugs, other neurotransmitters. So we can take a broader look at the central nervous system from a pathophysiologic approach. If we were focusing primarily on one neurotransmitter for a specific disease, we've now learned through medical imaging that that's really quite naive, that in fact what we need to do is to understand the relationship between the neurotransmitter we initially thought and all those neurotransmitters with which it interacts. And in doing so, we can develop pharmacotherapeutic strategies that are much more effective. And I think, you know, the one that comes to mind is the treatment of schizophrenia. For many years, we gave dopamine transporter or dopamine receptor drugs. And we were effective in treating many patients with schizophrenia. But now, through medical imaging, we've learned that it's multiple neurotransmitter systems that are involved. The consequence of that now has been that big pharma has focused on developing new drugs that target multiple neurotransmitter systems. These are the drugs like clozapine or risperidol. 
And we're finding that, in fact, these are extremely effective. And that's really come out of medical imaging. It's really come out of teaching us that changes in neurotransmitters are far greater and occur in far more systems than what we have originally thought. So what do you see happening in the field of neuroanatomy in the next few years? I think that the biggest advances that we're going to see in terms of neuroanatomy is probably not really defining the brain from an anatomical point of view much better, although MRI studies are now showing us subtle differences that we hadn't really described. But I think the biggest advantages by far will be those that we learn about neurochemistry. I'd like to thank our guest today, Dr. Stephen Dewey. We have been discussing neuroanatomy for everyone. I'm Dr. Leslie Lent. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.